You're listening to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. This makes my nipples hard. Hey there, and welcome to the podcast. Joining us this week is Daniel Albu, a fellow member of the Adventure Game Hotspot. Daniel has carved a unique niche for himself in the gaming industry, not just as a developer, but also as a curator of gaming history. And on this episode, we're digging into a discussion about The Dig, a game that stands as a unique gem in the LucasArts catalog, celebrated for its depth of narrative and sweet pixelated goodness. Wow, that's quite an intro. Right? I, yeah, it's just, I don't appreciate these little puns you keep slipping into the intro. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, thank you for coming on, man. How, you, how, how, how are you? I mean, we know how you are because we just, we just were talking for quite some time. But to the audience, you, you, just, you just stepped into the room and we're all like, Daniel, what's my, my dude? What's how you doing? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And second, how am I doing? Doing fine. Very good. I don't. I. I. I feel like I, that's such an obligatory question. It's like everybody's going to say they're fine, regardless of you know. Uh, personal tragedies or whatever might be going on. Um, but, you know, we, we got to say it. It's just like, you know, if, if, if we don't say how you're doing and hear that I'm fine, then then, then we sound cold. So I'm, I'm glad you're all, we're all fine. We're all surface fine. Um. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, well, you know, surface fine, but we might dig into all of it during uh, this episode. Yeah. I had to reuse it uh, you left it open. Yeah. Man, oh man, this yeah. is exhausting. Get all the big puns out of the way. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Actually, okay, so we are here to talk about The Dig, which is a game that um, I personally had experience with when I was younger through the LucasArts Archive Volume 3, and I never finished it. I got stuck in the beginning, and I don't know why. Having played through it again for this episode, I don't know why I got stuck in the beginning. All I had to do was pick up the comm about the pig and talk to the girl yeah. and she sends it out and the game goes on. But when I was a teenager, it, it didn't uh, catch with me. But I am super curious to hear, when did you first play this game or even hear of it, Daniel? Wow. When you say that you were stuck at the beginning, you meant the actual beginning of the game. It's like <laughs> the, the third literal. action in the game. <laughs> For real. I don't know. I think it's because I just finished playing Monkey Island and I was like, oh, this should be just like that. And it was it was such a different tone. And I don't know, I passed it by and I'm disappointed I did that because it really is a beautiful game. First of all, we have to talk about the different tone. People keep saying that the dig has a different tone, mm -hmm. but I don't agree with that notion because even though it's not haha -ha funny like Monkey Island, it is sarcastic in a way. It is very wry. Yeah, I agree. I was just saying that to Paul. I said it is still funny. It's just, it's just a different kind of funny. Did you play it when you were a teenager or when you were older? When did you come across this game? I played it in spring 1996 mm. and when I was a teenager. And I finished it in a week without any Damn. help, without yes. any walkthroughs. Didn't have any at the time. And I think that out of all of the LucasArts adventure games, this and Loom are the only two adventure games, apart from the fact that they're two of my favorite adventure games, they're the only two that I completed in a week without a walkthrough. The other ones that I finished without a walkthrough took me a lot more than that. But mm -hmm. these two, that's why I don't understand when people say that the puzzles are difficult or, or obtuse. I think it's a pretty short and easy game. Mm -hmm. 
That is that is interesting because Loom completely makes sense as far as being able to complete it in a week without a walkthrough. I mean, it's still, still impressive, but 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 I could get behind that. But this game, the the okay, I, I guess I guess I could I could get on board with it if it wasn't for the claw machine puzzle. Mm-hmm. That Are was you, really tricky to figure out the lights and which way for it because you had to catalog what 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 each one did first, and then to clue in you have to do them in a row. It took me forever. Yeah, how, Danny, how did you how did you get through that that puzzle? If you recall, like the first time, and also I didn't I didn't explain it well by saying claw machine puzzle, but the, where you program <laughs> the robot to pick up the lens. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times, uh, I use the same method on my live streams in games that I haven't played yet. I brute force my way out of things. So <laughs> with this particular one, you know, you can just try various combinations to see how the claw moves, and then mm-hmm. figure out what you need to do. The, the main problem with that particular puzzle is the fact that you don't see the end of the claw because it's pretty pixelated. So you don't understand where the end of the claw is supposed to be placed in order for the claw to pick up the, the thing. But yeah. other than that, it's a pretty straightforward puzzle, Paul. Right. That's, yeah, I guess that's fair. I guess it is. If you, if you approach it somewhat methodically where you're actually tracking what didn't work, in other words, and that, that's for my lack of order kind of usually bites me in the butt when it comes to uh, precision. I'm not good with precision-based puzzles, I guess. Um, but that is, by I think, by far the hardest puzzle in the game. Is that a stretch? Would you agree to that, Daniel, the hardest? I don't think it's the hardest one. People tend to remember the tur- turtle puzzle oh, as fair. the hardest one in the game. In the game. Sorry. Right, that's so fair. The thing is, with uh, with a turtle puzzle, was the fact that they realized that it was too difficult through playtesting, and so they added the fossil in the lagoon over there, and people don't seem to notice that there is a fossil. But if you look at the fossil, apart from the fact that it looks out of place because they had to hire a different artist to work on the fossil because they added it like pretty late into, produ- into production, mm. People don't notice the fossil, which has the solution of the turtle puzzle. Hmm. Right. So it's just That's a matter a of noticing. Yeah. As long as you just notice that one. Yeah. Because I don't remember that one being difficult. So I must have been able to spot hmm. that. Um, okay. Well, hold on. Let's, let me let me back us up. So, okay. My, my experience with the game real quick is I played it for the first time about five years ago. Um, and then, Anna, you you I guess you had already covered that. You played it when you were, well, you played like, I don't know, 20 minutes of it when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. And then, and then yeah, just. Not enough. And then just this week, um, got it finished. Okay, so that catches up. That's our little origin stories with it. Um, let's let's kind of go th- through the game based on like a timeline of events of, of the game's story. Let's say, and, and I hopefully can. I want to kind of stop as we go along and just get Daniel get all the anecdotes that you have behind development and things like that. Because you've um, maybe a good thing to get out of the way now is how many people regard or that were involved in development for the dig have you interviewed? Wow. First of all, I interviewed the, out of the um, project leads, I interviewed mm-hmm. Noah Falstein and Dave Grossman, which are the first and the third project leads. And mm-hmm. out of the people who actually worked on the game, quite a lot. The the yeah. composer, Michael Land. I interviewed, for example, An- I interviewed Anson Ju, uh, mm-hmm. who was an animator on the previous versions. And so a lot of the things that he's worked on didn't make it into the game and are Ooh. just there as relics of the past. And actually, they're 
there's a credit in the credit sequence that's called Ghosts of Diggs Past. Yeah. <laughs> and people are credited there, people who worked on the previous iterations of the dig. I heard it was a lot, uh, a lot gorier in, mm. in some of the iterations. I think the goriest part in the whole thing was, you know, for later when you have to do some work with the guy's hand to help him out. But th this particular version is not particularly gory. What's interesting about the gore, and, and Daniel, maybe you can confirm this because I'm not sure if it's of the validity of it, but I, I had heard that some of the backlash from Jurassic Park actually caused Steven Spielberg to request that some of the gorier scenes, which apparently he was responsible for um, in the dig, mm -hmm. to be removed, which is interesting. Cause exactly. Okay, very cool. Because that's kind of mm -hmm. neat to think that Jurassic Park had a, had a kind of direct, maybe indirect effect on the game. <laughs> Well, just like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom caused the, the movie uh, mm. association to create the PG-13 rating. Right, so. right. Yeah, very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it's, I'm trying to think now, of, like framing-wise, because if we're going to go through the story of the game, it, and I'm not sure how to fit the, the various stages of development into that, so maybe we should cover that now. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, I'll ask you, Daniel, what, what, did you get a story from Dave Grossman? Because when I was going through the brief history of the game, I was surprised at how short of a time he was involved in it, and I'm kind of curious why, why he left so quickly. Yeah, in my conversation with Dave Grossman, he told me that he worked on it for like a month or even less. And the reason why he left so quickly was because he didn't want to work on a game that's that serious. He preferred oh. the more whimsical games. Right. Even though, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, the game mm. is not that serious. No, it's not. And, and to your point, Daniel, it definitely maintains, I think, a kind of that staple LucasArts uh, quippy sarcasm throughout. Like mm -hmm. it, it feels pretty on brand to me. It's it's maybe maybe like the the overarching theme is more serious, but I I agree with you. I think that the the, mm -hmm. the contents of the actual dialogue are pretty playful, um, are pretty mm -hmm. on brand for Lucas. Yeah, it's not like jarringly serious or anything like that. Which which you're right, and it could definitely if you, if you were to go on reviews alone, you might you might pick up that that sense, but that's definitely not the case. It's, it's pretty playful and fun. Um, okay, so Brian Moriarty, I didn't know until researching for this episode that he was involved, but it was one of those deals where as soon as I heard that he was a lead for quite some time on the game, it just immediately made sense because there's 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 a loom-like <laughs> vibe to the game, I guess, <laughs> with, with the crystals exactly. and, and just the fa the <laughs> fantasy. That's the word I'm struggling for. Yeah, there's like a fantasy level that, that feels pretty on brand for Brian. Um, and also for you to confirm, was Brian apparently... Okay, so to our listeners, LucasArts had, I guess, what they called like a pizza orgy, where they would mm -hmm. uh, they would have everybody come in, eat tons of pizza, and play test the games, and in return they had to give feedback. And and Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that Brian left or quit the project um, that day, the day of the like after right after the pizza orgy, he's like, I'm out. Well, I, I don't have the exact dates because I'm still waiting for him to reply to my emails, for mm -hmm. to join me for a conversation, but. I do know that he worked quite a lot on the game and some of his elements made it into the final game. That's why he gets writing credit, unlike mm. the other people who are listed in the Ghosts of Dick's Past. Right. <laughs> but but Brian Ward he seemed to had he seemed to have problems with working in a team. And so that's why Things worked better in Loom in a much smaller team, but yeah. not in the dig. 
Right, right. Um, it seems I don't know the dig the dig. There, okay, on, on one hand, there there is an element of of uh, what would you say, like quilted, stitched together in a sense. Like the, I guess what I'm saying is, the first time I played it, I did get a, a small a small sense of maybe development problems or that it had switched hands. Let's say. Um, but mm-hmm. once you once I realized just on the surface level of, of how much how many problems they had and how many leads were changed, it's actually a pretty cohesive game. It, it doesn't reflect <laughs> the, quite the amount of, t- of turmoil that it went through in development. Is that fair? I agree. Yeah. The thing is that there are every time they started the, the project anew, they they started from scratch and they try to keep some elements. But most of the time, they just started from scratch. So there are some backgrounds that remained from the beginning of the the production of the game. And there are themes that sticked all the way through. But the main problem, the main reason why it seems like it was they started production earlier than, a lot earlier than, and the usual LucasArts games, for example, you could see that LucasArts game that was released in 1993, you'd know that they started production in 1992 or 1991. So mm-hmm. the graphic interface and the the overall experience seemed like something in line with things that were released in that particular year. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. with the dig, when you have Full Throttle that was released in April 1995 and had... Mm-hmm. You know, larger sprites and cinematic scenes. We didn't have; they didn't add the same things in the dig because the dig started production a lot earlier. So the, mm-hmm. the interface, if you notice, the interface the interface has a lower resolution than full throttle. The mm-hmm. sprites are really small, and the way they had to, you know, make the game seem a lot more impressive was with the cutscenes. But the cutscenes don't seem like they're in the same graphical language as mm-hmm. the the interactive scenes because you have you know low res interface with low res adventure gamey things, mm-hmm. while cutscenes that are full screen and animated, unlike things that were very in line with things that were released that year. Right. Right. Yeah, because it's uh, the game was made in in three engines, or I guess two for the visual, right? The scum and the insane, which I hadn't learned about till mm-hmm. I started researching an interactive streaming animation engine. Now, didn't Bill Tiller? I know you had a an awesome interview with him. I was I was re-listening to some of that, and and he was saying so he kind of stuck with the whole project, I guess all the way through. Well, he's he's um, credited as the lead designer on the final version. And mm-hmm. he did stick around for some of the previous versions. He was one of the people that seems to have kind of been there all the way through, you know, doing whatever it is that he does to make it happen. Was I think it... he joined in the second iteration, if I'm not mistaken. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Because with Na Falstein's The Dig, the, the game was quite different. The game had RPG elements and things that didn't make it into the final game. But the second iteration, which is Brian Moriarty's iteration, has a lot more elements that made it into a final game. Was it, is so, there any, 
Sorry. Go ahead. Was there any way to play any of the original? Because I've seen quite a lot of, of screen grabs or, or footage, I guess you could say, of the early iterations. Was, was there any playable demos like floating around online from the early versions? So I keep asking this question, the various guests that come on my show, and there wasn't any. Even though there was a pizza orgy, which mm-hmm. is supposed to be around the playable demo, they didn't have a playable demo. Maybe it was a more of a presentation of the, mm. the things that are present in the game, like the non-playable demos that LucasArts had back in the day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even though the first two iterations were pretty long, I think the, the Brian Moriarty one was 18 months. And so after 18 months, they didn't have anything to show for it. Because the game was pretty, there wasn't any actual gameplay, and and so there aren't any playable demos. Interesting. Okay, it's almost in a disappointing sense because some of the the footage I had seen online looked it just looked so tangible, like like something you could get your hands on when the sprites were slightly different. And I think there was a a, a fourth a fourth lead an, an Asian character. I can't think of his name. Um, yeah, Toshi Olima. Toshi, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it just it, it looks it looked quite interesting, and then there's um, I guess there's also the element of the the different art types, which I've heard some critique about, and, and it, that I didn't agree with because I, I didn't really find an issue with with it. But I think the the overall idea is that there's the 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 main pixel art that we see throughout the game, and then there's the the, the uh, I guess you could say cartoon style cutscenes, and then there's the 3D mm-hmm. aspects of it. And I thought I think that it really adds to its personality. Like I appreciated mm-hmm. that quite a bit. The only time I found any of that jarring was. Um, the the alien bug when Maggie is tied up um, that he you know he's he's so three D compared to everybody else that was maybe a little weird and maybe the same to be said with the sea monster but that's kind of just splitting hairs at that point because I, I overall really enjoyed it and I think scenes like the the three D scene where you're looking into the dark tunnel as the crystals kind of gleam off of the walls like it really adds to the game mm-hmm. I I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it so I just I just wanted to get your guys' takes on that on the different art styles. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, it took me back to a game like Dragon's Age a little bit or something with the those cut scenes because it really did. It hit that cinematic quality. And I don't know, I'd never thought of it even as being jarring. A lot of the games that we played growing up would kind of shift into this alternate reality where it would show this on the commercials. But you wouldn't see right. the actual gameplay. So I think I kind of looked at it like that because I, I really liked the animation. It was like playing Scooby-Doo or something. It was it was super fun. I thought it all went together really well. Uh- the, the different animation styles didn't bother me when I played it for the first time. And in my conversation with Charlie Ramos, who worked on the dig as an animator, he mentioned the different art styles. And I didn't notice it that much before he said something about it. But now I do. <laughs> and there are different animation styles. But s- somehow they make for a cohesive visual experience i mean yeah. sure the, the thing that with the 3d spider for example i was used to that from other lucas arts games because full throttle for, for example is a 2d point and click adventure game but you have 3d elements the bikes right. are 3d and the cars are 3d and even in seven max see the road which was released in 1993 you have the the cable car and the mm-hmm. largest ball of twine which is 3d mm-hmm. And then when they enter the the cable car, then they turn to 3D elements, and which is supposed to look weird, but looks fine because I, 
that was the technology of the time. It's part right. of the magic. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I agree. And that's actually a really good point, Daniel, is that it does seem spread throughout, or littered throughout the, the, the era. So I guess it, there's a familiarity as opposed to a jarringness. Because even what Gabriel Knight 2, which would have been a 95 as well, that has some kind of 3D elements towards the end with the, the wolf and, and the maze and such. So, some yeah. Janky 3D elements, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as, <laughs> as, as all Sierra 3D was, just incredibly mm-hmm. janky. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. Anna and I tend, tend to shift to to the team sierra side of things but but one thing i think at least i would happily give lucas is is the art direction art style is almost always superior mm-hmm. um and and one of my positive notes just since animation had just come up was that the 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 pixel sprite animation is exceptional like it is insanely good in this game um first thing comes to mind is like when when boston pulls the the wire down early in the game when he yanks it off of the the cape ceiling and just the fluidity, like they were just like at the the peak of their of their trade at that point, um, and it's mm-hmm. nice to see that too because especially around this time, you know, the, they, there was this shift into 3D and this push into even FMV. So it's like pixel art had really kind of was almost reaching its peak. I think you could say around around 95. So it's it's nice to see animations like that where it's like this is the best, the kind of the best that it got before they started shifting their attention away from it. Yeah, I mean, just think that in 1995, LucasArts released Full Throttle and The Dig, while Sierra released Phantasmagoria, Gable Night 2, and Police Quest SWAT, which are all FMV games. Wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't know. I and, really- you know, and I didn't even see the pixels. When I'd play these games, the Full Throttle games, when I was a kid, I saw them as a cartoon. Like, my brain didn't have a grasp on breaking down the picture into its individual components. So I always saw it as a cartoon picture and it looked so realistic in games like this in particular. It's not till, you know, later on and graphics have moved on and you're like, oh, now I can see the components. And of course, making games, you can see that too. But it was it was invisible to me back then. But it's not because your perception changed since you were a kid. It's because the CRT screens made that look like it wasn't pixelated. Uh. Oh, really? good call. That's yeah. a good point. Huh. That's, that's I didn't so think of that. F- for example, if you if you look at the EGA version of Monkey Island, the secret of Monkey Island, and the EGA version of Loom, and if you look at the backgrounds, you'd notice that the backgrounds have alternating pixels, mm-hmm. right. blue or... And, and they use this throughout the game either to create a shadow in the close-up scenes or in backgrounds to create like a twilight scene. But when we look at it on modern screens, then you can see each and every pixel. Hmm. But back in the day on CRT screens, they had that smear effect that made these look as if they were gradients when they weren't. So that's the thing. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that is that is kind of blowing my mind. Yeah, because if you think about the like uh, to what Daniel, what you were just describing, the kind of Mark Ferrari signature of of um, to our listeners, anybody just picture any random you know loom background and, and where you see the mm-hmm. you can really make out the the gradient of the pixels changing and with the CRT that would blend it perfectly. And and Anna, to mm-hmm. your point, I, I just had this moment the other day where I was looking at. Um, my son's really into logos. We were looking at like the logo history of things and we stumbled across the logo history of Microsoft Word. And I just had this moment of like realizing that all the icons back in the day were pixel art. And and it was like for the first moment, I was like seeing them as pixel art instead of as like the word icon. Um, but then Daniel, you just bring perfect clarity to that. It's like I didn't see it as pixel art back in the day because it because of the CRT. It really was just a smoother 
icon mm-hmm. as opposed exactly. to you know, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Well, we've we've covered some critiques. We covered some history. That's um, there's there's a lot of positive things to say about this game. And Daniel, am I correct that this is? I mean, and uh, this is I guess the nerdiest question I'll ask. But is this your like favorite point and click game? If you had to pick one. So Loom and the Dig both are both my top favorite point and click adventure games. Each one has its own. It depends on when you ask that question if we talk about the dig then the dig is my favorite one if we talk about loom then loom is my favorite one (laughs) that's fair for for me they they share the spotlight they're both Mm -hmm. great they both have various uh, um very immersive they provide a very immersive experience and they they're visually impressive yeah Mm -hmm. Not even for the time. They're visually no. impressive even to this day. Well, I was blown yeah. away just this week alone on, on like the moving shadows, the lights of the crystals, the patterns, and, and this whole game just blew my mind. I had, I just, I, I've been blind. Like I have, I showed you, I have the book by uh, the Dean Foster and I have the strategy guide, but I've never looked into the game on purpose because I, I didn't want to spoil a game I hadn't completed. So I had no idea what was going to happen all the way through the game. So it made it really intense. I really liked that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't forget that ILM worked on some of the cutscenes. So it's <laughs> ILM. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the art is... is... Insane. I mean, I mean, to to me personally, the pixel art is to, is still my favorite just form of, of graphic art. Period. And and to, this is just a masterclass in it. It, it is insane. Mm-hmm. The the purples and oranges that they use in, in the palette oh is like just deeply mm-hmm. satisfying. And the 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 they, they do things that just make you look at it and be like, that was all by hand. Because I think some of my my own some of the pieces of art that I do that I'm the most fond of have, are so heavily credited to what I can do because of Photoshop. So to mm-hmm. look at, to look at this game and realize that, yeah, okay. The, I think, I think the, the, the light, the latter artists on this game were actually using early Photoshop iterations, but, but they, they weren't using, you know, the, the gradient effects that we have nowadays. So a lot of these pixels were hand placed and, um, I'm not sure if the room is called the temple room, but there's one room where it's just, just drenched in, in gold glowing light, um, that's seeping mm-hmm. through the cracks and, and just, it's just an insane artwork. It is so gorgeous. It's so just fun to look at. Oh um, yeah. Is that, that's the statue room where the big statue is, isn't it? Where there's like yellow light. Yeah. In? Yes. It, yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It ties, it ties into that anyway. Um, mm-hmm. no, it is the statue room. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, so real quick then, just cause you bring up loom and dig, um, and both of those obviously coming from Brian Moriarty. Well, not obviously at all, but Brian Moriarty having <laughs> involved. Kind of from Bar- Brian Moriarty. Yeah, big old asterisk mark on there. Um, but I'm just curious, because I've never been uh, a text adventure guy just because I didn't grow up on them. Um, but I'm just curious, have you ever been curious to look at Wishbringer or Trinity or the other things that Brian did with Infocom? No, I haven't played those games, but I do know that the artwork for the manual on some of these games is very similar to what he eventually used in Loom, okay. LucasArts. So, so a lot of the, if you look at the, the games themselves, they may not look the same as Loom, but if you look at the big box and the artwork and the overall experience, then you can see Brian Moriarty's touch all over these. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that really says something about Brian himself because it's the, as as we said earlier in the episode that you can see Brian. I mean, it's yet to be confirmed, so I could I could obviously be wrong. I, I usually am, but you could really <laughs> kind of sense Brian coming through. It, or I, I would almost take a put a put a put a five dollar bill on what parts were Brian's. I guess you could say just again back to that fantasy element, or or even even the crystal aspects of it. There's just this loomy vibe to it. Um, but yeah, okay. So um, for some sort of structure, let's go through the story just a little, just loosely, I guess you could say. Um, it starts off basically with with uh, well, you, you think that you think that it's going to be the movie Armageddon for about twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, is this thing going to crash into Earth? What's the? I thought that's what was going to happen, or they were trying to prevent it from doing so. I had no idea they were going to go like get whisked away. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's. it's um, Okay, that's right. I'm, I, I had to pause myself. Like, how do, how do we talk about games? And we we decided a while ago that we, we play them for the listeners, sort of. So so that being said, yeah, you, you're at a press conference because there's a there's an asteroid that's that's pretty much going to hit Earth. I think the game says 99% chance it's going to hit Earth. Um, so they, they get together a team, not of of oil uh, drillers or whatever Armageddon, but but uh, but Maggie uh, of Robbins. A Robinson, so Robin. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Robbins. And Robbins. And Robbins she's, yeah. So she's a uh, she's a journalist. Um, then you've got Boston Lowe, who plays like the military uh, type, and then you've got Ludger Brink, who is the archaeologist, or I guess scientist to be more vague. Mm-hmm. Archaeologist and geologist. And geologist. Okay, thank you. Um, so they. Uh, those three are the main characters of the game. Again, this is for the listeners who haven't played it and are going to experience it poorly through our words. Um, and then there's two others. <laughs> there's um, there's there's guy that gets left behind and girl that gets left behind. I, I I'm going to need Daniel. Ken and Cora. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, you'll talk to them on the walkie a little bit in the beginning, and then and then they yeah they they get left behind as you as you dig deeper into the asteroid and find out that it's it's not at all an asteroid it's it's actually an alien ship mm-hmm. and you get whisked away to um, you know galaxy bloody far far away um <laughs> and that brings us to well where does that bring us to that brings us to i guess they're they're in the alien land they're realizing it's alien they take off their helmets because they can breathe and all that good stuff and 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 this is I know the first the first thirty minutes of this game are really really fun and I'll just say for the listeners too for anybody who's like on the fence about playing I played this one with with my nine year old son and he adored this game like he mm-hmm. loved this game and I, I was I was shocked and and, and very excited because the last two adventures I tried with him he was not into and I thought I was losing him a little bit with adventure games uh-huh. this reeled him right back in he had a, he had a lot of fun with this game. Um, and it was nice too because I, I was playing it this time around with a walkthrough to get through it to to really just refresh myself for this episode, and he kept me from like just direct line like A to B get through it with the walkthrough because he just wanted to keep exploring the rooms and and mm-hmm. you know reminding me of of what it's like and to play an adventure game basically by clicking <laughs> on all the things and just just eating. Wait, up. now I'm intrigued. What were the previous two games? Were they Sierra games? Ah, damn you! They were. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't That's say it. That's the answer right there. <laughs> yeah, they were. I'm actually blanking on one of the two, but but one of them was Longbow. He was not into mm-hmm. Longbow at all. Um, Nobody is. <laughs> um, yeah, what was the other one? Well, regardless, it, it was Sierra. But but anyway, well, yeah. It, 
yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's a beautiful game. I could see why you get into it. And and I mean, on a, on another level that perhaps he wasn't noticing, it had a really cool uh, character dynamic just between uh, Boston and Maggie. Because Boston, he's kind of like, oh, I got to take these. He's considering them to be essentially civilians, right? So I think mm -hmm. that forces um, Lud Ludger to be a little bit more almost arrogant to have to try to hold his place to be like, hey, I really do need to be here. And, and Maggie's just this really strong personality who's able to hold her own and, and fight you, fight you back. Like she's not laying back and taking shit from anybody. They're such cool, independent players in this game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree. Just, I had two, two notes on that. One was that I really liked how... Um, how natural the, the kind of uh, uh, building tension between Brink and, and Boston, it, it, it was the way it was written was done really well. Cause it just, it, it, it didn't feel ham fisted. You could, you could sense Brink's frustration slowly building and, and you could actually kind of like agree with him in a sense where he mm -hmm. did seem like the, the more experienced person for a lot of the, the tasks on the alien mm -hmm. planet, let's say, but, but at the same time you understood why Boston would take the lead being the commander but it was like, mm -hmm. again, like devil's advocate was like, well, I don't know. This, you know, this German guy's kind of right. Like he probably should be the one taking the lead as far as excavation and all that stuff's concerned. So I, I really liked how that was handled. And then quickly, mm -hmm. I'll just say that the other note I had on this part of the game was that um, women were represented really well in adventure games. And and mm -hmm. I, I don't know if a little bit of, of this comment from mine is is feeling like like it's maybe a little over-exaggerated nowadays because I, I think I think if you don't leave Twitter, you might start to feel like if you go back 20 years that, that women were just like 50s housewives and had no representation <laughs> um, or independence or personality. And it's like, it's not the case at all. Like this is like mm -hmm. a, a very, uh, to today's standards, like a strong, you know, female lead kind of character who didn't take any shit from anybody and, and knew who she was. And, um, and, and I thought that was good. And to extend that to really, I guess, adventure games in general, they seem to have always handled women well, um, I guess in large part, because especially over at Sierra, there were so many women in charge. So yeah, that, mm -hmm. was, that was all positive. Because the whole reason she's there is she suspected stuff was going on, right? So she's kind of, she pulled a lot of strings to get there and, and she's trying to get her exclusive, but she's like, oh no, there's a cover up. There's some weird shit going on. So she's coming in there with full intention. So it's not like, I don't know, it's, they made it really real. All the background and the framing, having the other crew members like Ken and Cora, even though they don't come on afterwards, like they've got a whole story and a whole background. You can go and you can research it and, and it's, it's interesting. Hmm. Dan, did you did you read the the book by chance the the D Allen or Dean Allen something Foster book? No, I haven't. But I, from what I've read about it, it seems like it's basically covering all of the things that happen in the game, like the cutscenes and the actions that take Boston from one place to another. Cool. And not much more. So it seems like a glorified walkthrough. Okay. It's kind of like that. That's, I mean, that's his reputation for writing books as he adapts. He adapts from movies into books and from games into books. And I think that's essentially what he did. Yeah. Adapted what the game would be with a full walkthrough and put it into a story. Exactly. I, I kept hearing every, everything regarding the book. I, I kept hearing like the, the less said about it, the better sort of vibe. Like, like it, it's not <laughs> that it, it wasn't necessarily like a, an expansive companion to the game. It was more just like a almost painful explanation of the game instead or, or something that might be a little harsh uh, on it but, 
as a summary, but yeah. <laughs> the strategy guide is way more fun. There, there's information about the characters, there's concept drawings. There was a little comment that they used to, a uh, comic that they used to pass around the office, just kind of taking snapshots of the daily dev life of making this game. And stuff like that that I really enjoy even more so than reading through the storyline. The, story the daily line, dev life over the course of six years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of like that. A biblical size book. <laughs> it would be pretty massive if it was all of it. But yeah, they're, uh, they're cartoons. They were just called, uh, they were posted on the wall by the desk. It was uh, Graham Annabelle, one of the animators that put them together. Mm -hmm. Oh, very cool. Okay. Mm -hmm. I interviewed him. Um, Oh yeah, exactly. I said I think you're attached. You've interviewed a, quite a few people related to this game. The um, I think another aspect. Sorry, going back to to my son being really gripped in this game was the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and that was I forgot his first name. Michael Land. Michael Land. Yeah. Ah, uh, Land. Yeah, you got it. Okay, and the, yeah, the soundtrack is absolutely masterful. Like it really, it really, really helps with immersion. It's really, really cinematic, and it it does. It has like a nice um. I don't know how to explain it, but the outer space scores always have this kind of sense of like weightlessness. Otherworldly effect. Yes, otherworldly. Mm -hmm. That's the word. Yes. Yeah, it's just it captures it perfectly. Um, the, the like the the spirit of the game and just the immersion and everything. So um, I had to throw that in there, kind of ham-fistedly, if I forgive me. But okay. So anyway, um, moving along in the story, I, I guess we could go a little bit further to what where the team well okay we left we left you know, fun fact about the soundtrack is that i listen to the soundtrack every every time i work on my questions for upcoming interviews so i always listen to the dick soundtrack when uh, i'm working on that is solid it was it was actually sold separately as an audio cd i'm not i think did it, it i think it was bundled in some of the demos for lucas arts games the soundtrack and things it, it was definitely worth no, putting the, out there the Soundtrack had demos for LucasArts games, not the other way. Around. Oh, is that but, how it went? Okay, I knew it was something like that. But yeah, it's great. I mean, it's not just, it's in the background, but it's thoughtful music. It's thinking, it's discovering music. I could see why you'd put it on in the background. It's intriguing yeah. music, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, well put. I was thinking the same things when when Daniel said that. Like, yeah, it does seem like good, good uh I don't know, like a good, a good work environment kind of setting. Like it's, there's something inspirational about it, but also calming at the same time. Would this, mm -hmm. would that CD have been? Because I'm thinking error wise, like weren't they like, like the bin and queue kind of CDs where you'd put it in your computer and you could just get the soundtrack right off of it? No. So the, the CD that had, the CD that came with a big box didn't have any CD audio. It huh. was recorded audio, and so the soundtrack was the only way you'd be able to hear it in a stereo system all the time gotcha okay was that was that almost on purpose so, so that they could sell the soundtrack separately honestly i think it had more with the limitations of the cd-rom drive because if you'd had if, the, if you'd have to play the cd audio while the cd is reading you know the v scenes or data from the cd then the music would skip and with streaming digital audio, you don't have that problem. Because, for example, in, in Loom, when Loom was released in CD version, then, first of all, they had to truncate a lot of the dialogue because CD audio has only 74 minutes, and they had a lot more dialogue. So they had to truncate a lot of dialogue. And 
And they also removed all the close-ups from Loom, the CD version, because the CD-ROM drive couldn't handle playing the music and changing the scenery to the close-up while the music is playing. Oh, interesting. Okay. So mm-hmm. that, okay. A lot of people were quite upset about the cuts that were made to Loom, and fair enough. Um, so I didn't, I didn't realize it was because because of the audio was was to blame for that, which is interesting. Um, and that, that's an interesting case in itself. I guess I guess would be for a different show. We, just because the VGA, uh, the EGA is 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 so gorgeous and such a kind of a masterclass in in EGA art that I understand why it's it's the preferred version. I think Brian Moore already said it's the only version. Um, but that being said, the VGA version is gorgeous. Like it, it is still like absolutely, it's so beautiful that it, that it's it's almost a little unfair how how immediately overlooked it is. Um, and I guess if we're going to be really nerdy, the FM Towns version is probably like the definitive as far as um, well the VGA yeah, because art. the FM Towns version is the EGA version in terms of dialogue and text and with VGA graphics. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so it really is mm-hmm. like a like the hybrid. Okay, that's cool. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. I'll swing. I'll, I'll just, just uh, in a messy sense, just swing us back to dig and say that next, after you're on the alien planet, <laughs> <laughs> um, you yeah. Okay. So you're on the alien planet. Let's see. This is. I, I guess I'm building up to the point where the team splits up. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I'll say that I was I was a little bummed that they split up so soon because I really enjoyed mm-hmm. the the way they were playing off of each other. I thought I thought maybe they split up a little too soon. What do you guys think? Well, one of them dies. Fair, yeah, that's fair. I mean, it was selfish of him to die, but yeah, that's, that's it fair. was. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when they went to Magrathia. Not that anybody needs to get this, but they end up, you know, splitting off into various directions and going all these grand tours and all these underground things, and it actually had a lot of parallels to the Magrathia. This yeah. is me just talking to myself clearly, but that's okay. I totally yeah. see it. Anyways, <laughs> it's in there, man. <laughs> that's fair. All right. So, were they so okay? They split. I'm gonna have to watch. Or, or I mean, no, I'm, I'm not gonna read. That's just a lie. I wouldn't read You're Hitchhikers. Not. But I guess don't, I, and don't watch the new movie either. You can watch the old BBC television series. That's okay. That sounds painful. Yeah, I think I'll skip the whole thing and just. <laughs> Just live with my knowledge. Uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just roll the dice that next time you bring it up, there might be a little bit of a silence, and that's just the way it's going to have to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's there, man. Who's going to write in and say, yeah, I totally see it too, just like Magrathia. Okay? Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. It'll be worth it for those three those three listeners that were like, I got you. Actually, you know, if, if we were on YouTube, I'd be like, you drop a, drop a comment below if you got what Anna's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are on YouTube technically. Right. Yeah. So do do a comment. Uh, don't 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 worry about it, guys. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, they do. They split off pretty quickly. One of them. One of them dies. I mean, he's uh, uh, Brink. Kind of is like, I can do this, and I think he totally can, and he should because he's the excavator. But he goes to dig this thing on the surface, and then just totally falls in the hole and dies, which caught me off guard. I had no idea one of the main characters was going to die right away. I was just getting into, you know, liking the guy for his, like, I liked his kind of attitude that he had. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. See, I was kind of, I was, I was rooting for my, my son did like, he's like stood up and put his hands on his cheeks, like home alone style. And was like, Oh <laughs> damn. Like he had like a YouTuber react to, to him. Dying. <laughs> so, which was kind of neat. 
Um, I yeah. traumatized my nine-year-old by having him watch the main character die. Oh, he was traumatized long before this. And, and actually, that reminds me, the other the other Sierra game that he didn't like was Leisure Suit Larry. Speaking of traumatizing my kid, yeah, he was he was just like, Dad, this is this is inappropriate. I'm going to my room. Oh my god! Even go my 13 year old, he's like, I was playing Jeez, Reloaded. He and sounds I was- like the responsible adult in your family. <laughs> the only one but yeah I, I was clicking the dildo on everybody and reloaded as a as a side you can take the purple dildo out of the cabinet and click it on everybody in the game if you randomly want to go off and spend money on a taxi and i'm like jacob jacob this is so funny check it out he's like mom no no this is not funny stop doing that and he just left the room again <laughs> i um, thought it was funny anyway he would have too if you weren't you know his mom <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we. Well, I mean, he's he's the kind of kid that'll be like, "Wow, that chick's hot." And I'm like, "So am I." Are you supposed to say that? But anyways, normally he's pretty good about that stuff. So <laughs> he's had, he's had a Freudian upbringing, you know. He understands. <laughs> it all comes back to the mother. That's I guess that's just how it is. Which leisure suit Larry did you play? Uh, well, we played the the first one. We played the VGA remake, and then we played Reloaded just to put some flavor spice on the episode. Yeah, and Reloaded was the one I, I, I invited him to play with me, and he was just yeah, he was not into it. <laughs> no. And he's he was it wasn't even like the, the the sexual aspects of it that he wasn't into. He was just just bored by it in general. He kept calling it ugly, which is not fair to the <laughs> game, first of all. But I, I, it also made me kind of happy because I think he's so used to pixel art that he's like yeah. he wasn't even sure what he was looking at. Um, <laughs> and that was the problem. Yeah, exactly. That was the problem. Is that it was that that, that that damn newfangled 2D art with the, the smooth lines and all that. So no good. Um, all right. So anyway, they, the Brink dies. There's there's shock and all throughout the household. Um, Maggie ends up in in what becomes known as the library, um, and, mm-hmm. and she's in there like learning the language. I guess you could say. Um, yeah. And also, sorry, on Brink's death, I'll just say that that was, um, uh, I liked how realistic the death was. Like, it wasn't like this really dramatic big fall and like neck break. It was like, it was more like, yeah, that is like people actually die that way. It was like a pretty small fall and like a hit to the head. And like, that's, that's usually good enough. It, like, it wasn't, it wasn't cinematic in a kind of jarring sense. Um, mm-hmm. For some reason, it kind of, it kind of shook me a little bit in, in its uh, lack of dramatics, I guess you'd say. Um, but I liked it. Yeah, and the loss of trust, um, you know, for Boston a little bit from Maggie, and and then just the sort of the realization that, dude, you're not a leader here. Nobody's a leader here. We're all just trying to make it happen and not get killed and maybe go home. So it's a bit of like a, a realization moment for everybody. Too little, too late at the time, but big deal. Right. right. Yeah. Well put. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah, like uh, Maggie, <laughs> Maggie, geez, Louise, Maggie heads off to uh, <laughs> to learn the other language. Um, which I, know, I had pedantic critiques of, like I just I thought that was a, it, maybe that was handled in a kind of an odd way that they they really dedicated like she's she's going to be learning language and by the end she's going to have it down. I thought that, I thought that was a little I don't know I thought that was a little weird. I, I I think at the time I was more just mad that she wasn't staying with Brink because I enjoyed their little mm-hmm. power struggle banter. But you know, apart from her being a journalist, she's a linguistics expert. Oh, okay, okay, and that that brings that's up why I, she was brought on board. Nobody cares about the reporting part. Thank you. Yeah. Ah, right. Okay, and I did hear that. Okay, now, that 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 makes me completely comfortable with it again. I appreciate. I really actually appreciate you saying that because that was a little hang up I had with the game. Right? It was, 
it was it was annoying me throughout because I, I completely forgot about the linguistic part. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and she's like she's totally like she was a private school kid who ended up having to go to a more open private school, and she was always kind of an anti-authoritarian. So you know she's a powerful force. Very cool. Okay. Did you get that that part from the? Yeah. Is, is it from the book or the hint guide? Yeah. Oh, all of that's from the the bios and the hint guide. I read that before we came on. That was that was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's definitely something I grew up on big boxes and feelies, digging into manuals for the backstory, or maybe the, could, would it be fair to say it's almost a Sierra thing because they always put so much of their damn story in in the book in the box as opposed to in the mm -hmm. game, especially in the AGI. Yeah, it era. was a '90s thing. Right, yeah, that's more fair, you're right. <laughs> well, they did this book, the, the Hint Guide, in the style that they did some of the other Hint books, as in it's even the Police Quest ones. They're telling a story, and you have to understand what to do through the story. So, you know, they always add little elements in, and they're not literally saying, turn left, pull switch. It's right. like, oh, you walk into the room, and there's all these switches. Maybe we should figure out what to do with them, kind of thing. <laughs> um. All right, so story-wise, let's see, I'm... I, I'm not doing a great job of this, but at least yeah, I'm I am doing a job of it. I guess you say. <laughs> usually I do this, so I'm really proud. Is of Is that you what right it now. is? Okay, yeah, I feel just like <laughs> lost in the desert right now, just trying to piece together some sort of coherence. But okay, so so Brink's dead. Check. Uh, <laughs> Maggie's learning a language because she's a linguistic expert. Thank you, Daniel. Check. Um, and so next, I guess, and uh, as far as like you know, just over or uh, summarizing it is. Um, okay, well, Brink's already dead. Sorry, I got lost in my own notes there. Um, I guess we're he, I guess to figure out the intentions. I guess of what what is what's going on here, and why are we here now that we're here? Not just how to leave, but they want to know what's going on too. They're collecting and they're making history historical finds. Right. So yeah, part five get a lot of gems and plates and things like <laughs> that. Um, because really, my next note goes right to using the crystal on Brink, but but. And it feels too soon to be saying that, but I guess there's there's not a lot of story in between Brink dying and that, or am I missing a huge chunk of game here? Well, the, using the crystals on him was, I said I was only about 45 minutes into my playthrough when I got to that part. So you're, you're going around, you're picking some stuff. It is. It okay. is. Because it's such a huge part of the story. And 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 I also love the close-up they do on the green crystal. There's this one where you're kind of holding it in your hand and just sort of like in mm -hmm. awe of what it is. I love that scene. Yeah, yeah, I've got that pulled up here too. Um, yeah, and and I, I guess I, I guess I'm going to keep bringing my son up because he 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 brings like a childlike wonder or innocence to the gameplay that that I haven't felt since I you know I played it for the first time and and it, I was losing him a little bit wandering around getting the plates and things like that and like I could feel his interest waning a little and then the the pacing wise was perfect because as soon as the crystal as soon as you use the crystal on Brink and Brink comes back that he was hooked back in again, but then the, the game does a really good job of setting like just a weird, subtle, a subtly ominous tone with Brink mm -hmm. where like he comes back and just like, just flashes. They really, they really did this with a light touch. Cause he just flashes like a, a, a quick little look on his face. And, and even my nine-year-old picked that up immediately. Like mm -hmm. he came back different. There's something different about Brink now. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I was more impressed with it. I guess the, the, the animation, um, or the specific, you know, that specific scene, because it, it read perfectly to my kid, like, hey, he's back, but he's a little bit different. And they didn't like mm -hmm. dwell on it or, or like really like, you know, rub your nose in it. It was just like a quick little subtle thing. And, and there was no confirmation yet or anything like that. Like, you just think he's back and he's feeling great, better than ever. Um, but that was a really, really cool 
element to this game because I could tell from there on out, like my kid felt like uh, a sense of unease, like, like, you know, kind of like a, a flinchy, like wondering what's around the next turn kind of vibe. Like it, it really, really kind of just creeped out the whole experience in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So anyway, okay. So that, so Brink comes back. Um, he says he's feeling better than ever. And I think, I think at this point the story's in like full swing now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. You're starting to like follow his descent into madness almost. Cause it, he doesn't even start off. Like you absolutely know something's up. It's just sort of happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so Danny, before I go further, what, what are some of your like takes on just the, the, the story up until this point? Like it, it, really, I, I, I'm sorry for not giving you a more like focused question, but just like, you know, I don't know. Is, maybe even on a, a nostalgic point of view, like playing this as a kid, like where were you at mentally at this point in the game story? Well, when Steven Spielberg first described the story of the dick, he described it as a as a marriage between Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Forbidden Planet, and mm-hmm. the Treasure of the Sierra Madre is pretty much it has the same plot devices of the team members going against each other, and and so it's very similar to that. So that's why they had to split up eventually, because right. each one had his own or her own agenda. Mm-hmm. Right. And and the fact that, you know, part of the magic of the dig is the exploration and mm-hmm. Boston's solitude. Because even though he's on this planet with two other people, he's pretty much alone most of the game. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Brink at, at some point becomes the the antagonist, so He's not part of the team anymore. And Maggie is, you know, the, the spider gets hold of her. Mm-hmm. And so Boston's pretty much alone in the game. And I, I really like that part because, you know, usually with LucasArts adventure games, a lot of the, a lot of the gameplay is the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But over here, it had, you had Boston talking to himself every now and then. Mm-hmm. But the story unfolded, you know, very much like an alien. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. you see things that happen. It's a slow burn, basically. And yeah. I love the fact that it's a slow burn because in, in adventure games back in the day, you couldn't create a game that was a slow burn because players would be get bored pretty quickly. And apparently mm-hmm. players got bored pretty quickly of the dig. And maybe that was one of its problems, but for me, it's part of its magic. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I guess I, I think I was almost trying to have cake and eat it too by by saying I wish they stuck together because there is that element of isolation that you get from mm-hmm. from being alone as Boston. Um, and and there, yeah, there's like a little bit of, of fear of the unknown and things like that 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 you wouldn't experience if you had company around you. Um, I, I I totally thought that you were going to be able to switch characters and control thinking of other LucasArts games. So when they split off, I thought you were going to get a control panel for each of them and a character switch button. I was like mm. positive that was going to happen. <laughs> What's interesting too about the, the boredom comment is is I feel like the, there's so much packed into the first like 30 minutes or so that, that, that I'll just speak for myself. That was enough for me where like I, I mm-hmm. felt... I felt fulfilled. I didn't feel at all bored. Like there was so much stimulation in the first 30, 40 minutes of the game to getting to the point of isolation that that I felt like the game earned 
it had earned its 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 time for for slow burn. You know, like it, mm-hmm. it, it had enough. Um, what would you say? Like good good faith, I guess, stored up yeah. um, after so much excitement. Yeah, but for example, Anna Anna lost interest after twenty minutes when she was a kid. So mm, apparently, right. I said, it, you know what happened? I went into the game in that uh, iPad thing, and you know where you land the asteroid, and I thought mm-hmm. I had to land it properly to forward the game. And I got stuck in that loop and I just couldn't land that asteroid in the game over and over and over and over. And I quit. I think that's what happened. I had so many other games in the archive to play um, because I I didn't do well in that one. And I didn't do well in afterlife. I tried really hard because I wanted to get good in afterlife, but they were just to me at the time, two of the trickiest ones in the box. Right. Yeah. And maybe that's more to say with, with early, with an, maybe an early puzzle. And it makes me think of like when I was uh, bailing on, on Leisure Suit Larry, I think seven, where mm-hmm. it immediately starts out with a pretty difficult puzzle. And I just, yeah, I just, yeah, I walked away instead mm-hmm. at the time. But, um, yeah, but in this case, it's probably the only, one of the only uh, dialogue puzzles in the game. It wasn't even just a puzzle. I literally yeah. had to call them. <laughs> I honestly, when I figured that out, (laughs) I was like, geez, man, that was, I was laughing at myself, shaking my head and saying, Anna, clearly, girl, you had no patience when you got this game. Because this is, that was entirely me. This is not the game at all. And if anything, actually, in the beginning, I got stuck, uh, not stuck, but I I had a little bit of a hard time after planting the bombs, um, trying to get them to explode because I was... I don't know. I just didn't think to use the, the telecom to, to talk to the other people. I kept talking to the two mm-hmm. um, that were immediately in front of me as opposed to on the intercom. So it took me a while to get, mm-hmm. get the bombs to actually blow. But but anyway, okay. Um, all right. So so Brink's dead. Oh, we did that. No, Brink's – okay. So Brink's revived. That's where we're at. Sorry. Yeah, he's, now he's alive. <laughs> he's, he's back. Yeah, he's back again. He feels better than ever. Um, so this is – as Danny, you were saying, the, the team's kind of pursuing their own objectives at this point. Um which is which is neat too because it does highlight as far as character growth. It's like you could their their own I guess differing like beliefs and priorities take over. So the characters start doing what's what they're interested in. I guess um, mm-hmm. at least a way to put it. Um, it brings becoming more like increasingly unstable due to his obsession with the life crystals. Um, so and then from a player point of view, I, I, you're starting to you're really sensing that there's like an, a, an addiction quality. Which I, I think Boston mm-hmm. does say it, but yeah, you're sensing this like addiction quality to the crystals, this obsession, uh, obsession growing between Brink and them, um, and so you know that yeah, you can sense. I guess Brink becomes he becomes unhinged a little faster than he becomes a rival in, in the beginning of the game. Like I was saying earlier, mm-hmm. the, the pacing of that was really nice. That he very naturally and slowly becomes a rival, or, or uh, I don't know, at, at odds, I guess, with Boston. Whereas with the crystals. It, it, I don't know, it doesn't happen quickly, but it, it doesn't mm-hmm. happen slowly either. It's, it, but it also makes sense too. It's the I think I guess all I'm trying to say is the pacing is done is again done quite well with, with the the madness setting in with Brink and and all that. And Maggie's trying to learn the alien language in the library. She's she's really quite grumpy about interrupting her, which which hurt my feelings because I was so proud to finally found her, and she just yeah. yelled at me to, to leave. And I know. Like, You're like, hey, it's you. She's like, would you quit following me for real, though? You're like, but there's another exit. You're not going to die in here. And she's like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, she gave me Sophie vibes because Sophie in Fate of Atlantis is, is, is pretty mean to you. She's pretty abusive throughout mm-hmm. that game. It was, it was, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so then the, this is this is I guess more or less where you, where you learn about the alien race, or you learn that they're mm-hmm. the creators. Um, 
and that they you know that they've built this stuff which is which is a really big review i think i'm i'm underselling that a little bit by by reading yeah. notes to the audience but it's you've spent a lot of the game wondering exactly what's going on and you're finally finally mm-hmm. getting like a little bit of clues or a little bit of you know um facts i guess you could say behind like what's what's actually going on with who the aliens actually are um and that I guess yeah, the, the museum exhibits and everything are pretty cool. The mu- the moving morphing mm-hmm. museum exhibits, man, that just that and the crystals changing and stuff and all these parts, like from the when you have to select them to go through the panels, the morphing and changing of the scenery on the screen, I'm obsessed with. It's beautiful. I want it yeah. on my screensaver, just constantly morphing like that. Yeah, I agree. The, the the texture and the gradient of of that scene alone, like the background part of that, is is so satisfying and so beautiful. And then the sound effect is is incredibly mm-hmm. satisfying. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, did did you guys realize, uh, or to the extent of the clues that 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 was offering? Because I didn't. I was thinking very short term, and I didn't. I didn't realize that that those those morphing moments. I can't think what to actually call them, but they they offer a lot of they offer a lot of insight. Like even for like an hour into the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you get a sense of what needs to happen. I think, mm-hmm. for example, with a bomb that needs to be placed in the turtle. So mm-hmm. you get that sense from those panels. But other mm-hmm. than that, most of the times you realize after the fact what they meant. Right, okay. Yeah, that's you, how it was you complete for me, a puzzle. Yeah. And, yeah, you complete <laughs> the puzzle and then you say, hey, oh, okay. <laughs> Hey, what do you know? It was, t- you know, one of the, pu- the one of the puzzles that caught me stuck for a while, and it seems unreasonably easy on this end, is the one where you have to create the bridges, but you have to hold down the button to make the light mm-hmm. bridges happen. I'm just, there's something about holding it down instead of clicking that just makes it the trickiest thing to figure out. But when I did finally figure out, it was very satisfying. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I never, I didn't really think about that. That might be one of the only times in an adventure game where where holding the mouse button is is the answer, and it's it's so hidden in plain sight that it is, mm-hmm. it is. I guess you could almost feel like feel kind of foolish for not getting it because <laughs> it's it's on paper it's an easy solution, but it's it's really not if you've been mm-hmm. trained in the art of point and click adventures. Like that's not something usually in our toolbox. Um, did it, I, think, did, I think that the all types of all types of you know, control changes mid-game that aren't listed in the manual are problematic. So, for example, in Phantasmagoria 2, you have the portal at the end, and instead mm-hmm. of left-clicking on the mouse, you need to right-click. Right. It's not listed mm-hmm. anywhere, and you need to guess that. So, with this particular puzzle, I think I figured it out pretty fast. Mm-hmm. But it's only because at the time, any any mouse any mouse actions were pretty new to us. Right. So it seemed like holding a button is um, counterproductive, but then you realize mm-hmm. that that's the solution to that puzzle. Mm-hmm. Right. I like yeah. that. It's it's one of those just simple genius puzzles. I I, I used to have a heated jacket because I'm a bit of a wimp in the winter time, and it's got a button on it. And when you hold down the button, it turns on. And when you hold it down again, it turns off. And the kids at my son's school, they'd been about grade one, grade two, they all would want to turn on my jacket. And they'd all come up and they'd, they'd touch the button. And they're like, oh, your jacket doesn't work. And that was my magic trick, holding down the button, <laughs> turning it on. And they're all like, whoa, they never figured it out, right? It took my kid, I, I used to tease him with that trick. It took him six months to figure out holding down the button. <laughs> so it's, it's really not a thing we automatically go to as human beings. Man, that's a, that's an oddly accurate analog for for this puzzle. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> that fits really well. Um, mm. 
Okay, um, so I, I, before I move along too, too quickly, because I'm actually running out of, of, of steps in the storyline, um, Danny, I want to go to you specifically. What, uh, of, of what has happened in the game up until this point, what are, what are some standouts for you, whether it's just in, in fun facts or in frustrations or in you know, favorites, anything? Well, I really like, like, like Anna said, I really like the part with uh, Life Crystals. The, the cutscenes were really impressive. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the way that the story was built in this particular instance with the Life Crystals, because like you said, if your, if your kid realized the fact that Brink came back different, then... Mm-hmm means that they've done their job right and the same goes for me because back then mm-hmm. i realized that brink came different so, so i i love the fact that a lot of the things that happen in the game aren't exactly dialogue related because mm-hmm. even though i knew english at that point in time i did know it that well to to cover all of the subjects that they discuss in the game but anything that can be said or hinted towards without any dialogue was welcome right right that makes sense or was a game like the dig more difficult for for uh, you know I, 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 being new to i guess understanding the english language or whatever just because there's so many i mean frankly there's just so many big words and and just like odd subject matters and things like that was it more difficult to follow well, that's the thing most of the puzzles there there don't require any knowledge of the English language. You need to know English to understand the story. But most of the time, most of the puzzles were not like the monkey wrench puzzle or any puzzle where you need to understand something that they said. Most of the puzzles are pretty standalone puzzles, like the claw. The claw is something mechanical, and it's a logic puzzle. You need to understand the sequence. Same goes with the turtle puzzle. Same goes with the light bridge that you need to hold the button to mm-hmm. activate the light bridge. And and most of the puzzles are not dialogue puzzles, apart from the first one. But it seems mm-hmm. that even you guys struggled with this one. Yeah, so. we did. Yeah. And it seems most of the dialogue... It wasn't a language that... barrier. <laughs> right. No, no, it, it seems not. And, and I mean, not even all the dialogue in the game was necessary. Like, I have a feeling, although I clicked every dialogue option on everybody, like I always do when I play a game, I think I could have skipped 70% of that and it wouldn't have affected my gameplay other than missing a little, some details and, you know, some cool dialogue. Exactly. I recently played Seminac City Road and I noticed that a lot of the things that you love, the puzzles have to be solved through dialogue. So you have to yeah. go through all of the dialogue options. And in mm-hmm. Seminac, you, you get icons just like you get them in the dig. So, mm-hmm. right. I have a, a friend in Estonia who said uh, he had a really hard time with the King's Quest games because all of the puzzles were based in fairy tales that he just simply wasn't familiar with growing up. And it just, it, it relied so heavily on knowledge of these fairy tales that uh, it made it really super difficult for him to complete at the time. Hmm. Uh, Daniel, I have an oddly personal question. Just out of curiosity, do you, do you, I hope this isn't rude. Do you, I'm proceeding anyway, but do you, <laughs> do you, do you ever think in English or, or are all your thoughts in your native language? That's a great question because I recently talked to Paul about this because when I rewatch some of our live streams, I can tell you whether or not I'm sleep deprived or exhausted during the live stream 
because usually, given the fact that I've been, you know, I learned English like 30 years ago or 30 plus years ago. And so I can think in English. And a lot of the times I know English words that I forget in Hebrew. Wow. And so I say the word in English, even when I speak Hebrew. But when I'm sleep deprived, then that part of my brain doesn't work that well. So, you know, going, what I do is I say the phrase to myself in Hebrew, and then I translate it verbatim. And it's not always how you say it in English. And so a lot of the times I notice that when I say something like that, I, I, I realized that I was sleep deprived in that particular live stream. Very cool. That is a, that's quite fascinating. So, so you, mm -hmm. your English is, is, let's say, so good that it's more of a, a stream, a, a solid stream of consciousness. But, but if yeah, you're I usually, I usually think in English, especially when I talk in English, but when, when I'm sleep deprived and my verbal abilities aren't that, let's say, uh, my verbal abilities don't work that well in those mm -hmm. particular instances, then in order to keep the conversation going, I think in Hebrew and then I translate it to English. And right. sometimes it works, sometimes hmm. it doesn't. Very cool. Okay, and I got one more language one. Just this is just for, from from me being a Jew. I'm just curious. Do you, do, uh, do, do you guys learn Yiddish in Israel? Like, is is that nah? Is it, no, okay. Nobody does. Nobody does. Okay, that's fair. Is it? Yeah. It, it almost seems like a. a like back in the like a like a boomer generation sort of thing at this point. I'm not sure. Besides, no, it's like, not boomer generation. The the Hasidic Jews uh, over here do speak in Yiddish. Okay. But uh, but they live in the in the Stone Age. So right, right, yeah. right. There's boomer vibes. But but yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> um, okay, I'll I'll bring it back to the game and say, is this. Is this game, because uh, Danny, you had mentioned earlier the logic puzzle thing, and that's a note I had was that was well, my note just says odd amount of logic puzzles. Um, <laughs> is is this the, the the most amount of logic puzzles for a Lucas Arts game? Would you, would you guys say it's just because, it, or I'm, I, I guess that's not really the question I have. I'm more wondering. I think I'm more wondering where where all the logic puzzles suddenly come from in the dig because you don't you don't really see a ton of logic puzzles like this. In that yeah, I think that most of most of the most of the logic puzzles come from the fact that you can't have dialogue puzzles because you don't have anyone to talk to, mm. and you don't have inventory puzzles because you don't have that big of an inventory. You have the shovel, mm -hmm. and you use the shovel like fifty times in, uh, throughout the game, which is why the mm -hmm. game is called the dig, probably because <laughs> you actually dig all the way uh, all the way through, and and so I think that. The reason for the standalone puzzles was either because they had to, you know, when when Sean Clark became the the project lead, then they had to ship the game. They mm -hmm. didn't care about the fact that they had different animation styles and that every artist brought his animation style into the game, and they didn't care about any of that. They wanted to release the game for, you know, the holiday season of 1995. And so logic puzzles are the easiest puzzles because you don't have to create a flow chart of the things that the player needs to pick up from a certain location and then talk to that person and then solve that puzzle. Mm -hmm. Every puzzle is like a key. You need to find the key and the key is a certain combination of things or a, a logic puzzle. Mm 
I did a, find. Oh, go ahead if you want. Well, it's just that's a very satisfying answer because that that, that it, it makes such immediate sense because it, there's yeah, like you said, there's there's much less to account for in general with with a logic puzzle as far as checking, you know, fifty variables or, or accounting for different alternate scenarios that the player might find themselves in. It's it's yeah, a lot more cut and dry. Yeah, very satisfying answer. Go ahead, Anna. I was just saying, if, if there ever was a game that was kind of a, a bit of a place where you could use a hotspot finder as a modern gamer, this would be considered one. Not that I personally want one, but I did find on a lot of scenes, it was kind of hard to discern where the plate was or where a little mound was, that I was doing the thing where you're just scaling your mouse across the screen back and forth in kind of a grid-like pattern to see, because there was a few times I couldn't find something. It turns out it was a depression over here or it was a little outcropping here, but it was harder to discern. So I, I did find a lot of time puzzling in that way, just like literally moving my mouse around. Right, well, this <laughs> happened in most of the LucasArts games of the time. It and, did. you know, they had to simplify everything to, to get mm -hmm. the, the game out there. The, the dig is also the only LucasArts game with a cursor that is highlighted similar to what mm -hmm. they did with the FMV games. Sierra mm -hmm. did with the FMV games. So with Phantasmagoria, you have one cursor that lights up whenever there's a hotspot. And you got mm -hmm. the same with the dig. Mm -hmm. Loom also had what you need to, you know, you need to cast the drafts on the object. So the, the drafts themselves are like the verbs. So it's mm -hmm. not like a cursor that you use to click on things. So the thing mm -hmm. is the only adventure LucasArts adventure game that has that interface. Mm -hmm. Was development-wise, was was the dig always designed like this? Do you know, Daniel, or were earlier no, iterations? No, no, it wasn't. Earlier iterations had like earlier iterations had like you know six verbs. They had push and pull, and they had different icons. There are various screenshots from from Nas dig and Brian Moriarty's dig, and. And you can see that they had a different interface, different sprites, vastly different plot in certain parts of the game. So, huh, that's pretty cool. And and I know we'd sort of touched on this earlier, Anna. You had brought up the the insane engine, but was the final iteration just Scum VM? Is that correct? It says no, that Scum the cutscenes the emulator. Were, um, sorry, is the engine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Scum was the engine, but they still used Insane for the cutscenes, and I think they used iMuse for the audio. How does that even yeah, work, exactly. development-wise? How do you yeah. use this, how do you use two different engines? Like they implement the Insane engine. The Insane engine was the engine that Vince Lee created for Rebel Assault in order to be able to stream full-screen video, because mm -hmm. back then the the Scum engine had its limitations. So, for example, you couldn't have more than 40% of the screen animated at any mm -hmm. given point. So having full screen animation was problematic okay. given this limitation. So the insane engine was used for the cutscenes and they used it in Rebel Assault for the video scenes. And then they mm -hmm. used it in full throttle for the mm -hmm. cutscenes as well right. as uh, on the dig. Yeah, and I think Outlaws. And the iMuse the, the 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 is the, the engine they use for the music since Monkey Island 2. Right, I'm using an engine. Okay, huh? Sorry, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around just compiling w one game for multiple engines. But th that sound—that's probably a, a pretty significant rabbit hole. I just have to go down. <laughs> it's, it's very similar. This particular, you know, workaround that they did—it's very similar to what Sierra did with Phantasmagoria to 
Mm-hmm. If, if you played Phantasmagoria 1, you notice that the FMV scenes are part of the SCI engine. So, for example, you have FMV scenes in which you can use the cursor and click on things during the FMV scene. And this doesn't happen in Phantasmagoria 2 because in Phantasmagoria 2, they wanted to have high-quality 16-bit video during the cutscenes, and SCI had 8-bit interface. Ah. So in order to have the 16-bit video, whenever there's a, a cutscene or an FMV scene in Phantasmagoria 2, SCI shuts down, and then the video player pops up in the background and plays the video scene, and then when the FMV scene is over, then the video player shuts down and SCI oh, restarts. It's kind of so like QuickTime. Is... There was a few games like that. Yeah. Exactly. So mm-hmm. so the, the insane engine is similar to that with whenever they wanted to display something that was outside the capabilities of the scum engine, then they, they'd use insane. Very okay. That helps me understand. Thank you. And and, and a quick question, just because we're on Fantas two, really quickly. I, from what I understood, that there's a a, a lower res like DOS only version. So in the in the DOS yeah. version, would they be? Would SCI have handled the video scenes? Like, is that what made the DOS version lower res? No, in the DOS version, you have the eight bit scenes, but it works similarly, just with a different player because it uses different files for the sixteen bit and the eighteen bit. Gotcha. Okay. That's satisfying. Thank you. Okay. Um, so-, so I just want to take one second before we move on to give a nod to the creatures. Everything from, from the bats in this game to like these little, uh, like there was, I think, eels, flying eels, uh, those little rodents that come running around, like the one yeah. you had to use for a puzzle. I was really mm-hmm. impressed with the, the detail and, and these creatures that I'd never seen before anywhere else. I mean, entirely original, the, the guardian beast and all that, like, I loved the creatures in this game. The one interesting thing about the bats was, you know, we Mm -hmm. talked about the fact that the original game was much gorier than the the final version. So one of the puzzles, if you remember in the game, is that you have to use the flashlight on the bats to get Hmm. them to frighten and brink when he's in that opening. But the, the original solution for that you had to poke out the eye of the monster from the lagoon and then <laughs> cut its eye out, cut the lens out of its eye and place it on the <laughs> flashlight because that, for some reason, was the only thing that the bats were afraid of. And so that was the, the gorier solution to that puzzle. Oh, that's cool. Okay. That's amazing. Gosh, there is every part of me that loves the gory stuff that would just, just would love to see a complete version of one of those earlier iterations. <laughs> Or Jurassic Park ruined it for everyone. Like like Toshi Alima walking into acid. Oh, that's how he would have died? No way. <laughs> yeah. <No. dude>. Awesome. <laughs> um, all right. I'll move us, move us through because we're pretty much at the, well, more or less towards the end of the story. We've got uh, where, we, where we left the listeners off anyway was everyone had gone their separate ways. Brink was, was, was uh, becoming more and more maddened, I guess, was kind of losing his mind over the life crystals, trying to collect them, and his obsession was growing, you could say. Um, so then we get kind of to, like, the, the climax, like, towards the, the confrontation resolution, I guess you could say, um, where, uh, where the conflict with the team members has, has reached reached a peak. Uh, sorry, I'm blatantly reading notes. I'm just going to call myself out on that. Um, <laughs> make- <laughs> Couldn't tell at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds natural to me. <laughs> 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 um, let's see. The storyline includes themes of sacrifice, 
the ethics of using power tip. Right. Okay. That's just too much there. Corman, take it easy. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I might want to just go ahead and skip that whole, that whole, uh, part of my notes there. It's just, it's, it's nonsense. It's a lot a, of back and forth, making bridges appear, getting panels, putting panels and things, turning on lights and turning off lights. And then, you know, you're back yeah. into it with, uh, you partner back up eventually with Maggie again and, and the dynamic duo after dealing with uh, a bit of uh, Ludger uh, on the brink of madness. Huh? Much better than I could do. Yeah. I pretty, I'm not going to, yeah. <laughs> so anyways yeah he he's gotten all weird and, and you know you guys are now you guys have to deal with him and then you guys have to deal with the rest of being on the planet next right exactly um okay can uh can one of you two take over for how brink dies well he's built a new device right and and he's gonna you come in and you you guys are kind of like we want to have these uh, these crystals, we're going to make new crystals. We're going to make your device work. We got the piece to make it work, right? But we can't make it work yet. And so you you put it in, and you kind of get him to agree with the deal. And then you take the two new crystals it made, and then he gets in, he gets angry, right? And he's like, "Hang on, I want all the crystals. I'm not letting you have any crystals. And you made my machine not work, so I'm going to kill you." Was kind of how it it set it off. That was awesome. I. I... <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. You kind of described that almost as like a high school drama playing out. And then she was all like, and I was like, what? <laughs> it was um, pretty dramatic though. So, I mean, that's it. You're in, you're in the tussle and, and honestly, uh, yeah, Brink ends up dying again, but they didn't, he, Boston didn't mean to kill him. He had no intention of doing it. And you could see it on him afterwards. He's like, I did not want any of this to happen that way. And so Maggie's kind of like, it's okay. He wasn't even really who he was anymore. Right. But you could see, I mean, yeah. this is just kicking Boston's ass all the way through this mentally. Yeah. But us as players, we care less about Brink. He died once. Yeah. He had his time. We're just like, yeah, you're already <laughs> dead. As a player, I'm just like, well, that's good. Now you guys can move on to doing stuff. But this is great because now we have the crew together again. And Boston and Maggie, they're off and they're doing their thing. And she's following him and they're having their banter again. So, Paul, you must have been happy. Yes, yes, I, I, I was. I was happy. And that's. I guess I guess I'll kind of skip us to to Maggie turning on the machine and them having having a brief conversation before and, and she's like, Hey, if I if I come back, don't revive me with a life crystal and and Boston says the same, you know, don't revive me either. And then, you know, Boston suspects Maggie of lying, that she knows more mm -hmm. than she's letting off that turning this machine on might kill her. And um yeah. I didn't I didn't write the exact line down, but Maggie says something that that as as the player convinced me that she was lying, which she mm -hmm. was. Um, but it was I don't know, she's like, he's like, if you're lying you know, bubbly, vague threat. And she's like, yeah, I know. I, I forgot. It was her response to that, though. It was, it was very, like, telling that, that she was definitely lying. While she was dying, you realize that she knew that she'd die, but she had mm -hmm. to do it so that they'll be able to go back. Right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well put. Okay. And, 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 and so she does. And so, you know, Brink heads off and, um, I, I appreciated that as he's as he's going to cross one of the light bridges, uh, that one of the creatures shows up again, and and I I was I was emotionally exhausted at this point, so I was really glad that the game kind of kind of messes with you a little bit because it you know it made me feel like I was going to have to do something basically at all to handle this creature, and, and you kind of don't um, mm -hmm. where you know he, he falls off the light bridge. Um, 
you know, with, but you with, need to turn it off first. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You're right. You're right. Yeah, without much more than the click of a button or so, you don't have to do too much. So that was nice because it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, please don't be like some boss level difficulty puzzle right now. Like, you know, was, mm-hmm. I didn't want anything to, I think to interfere with the story at that point too. So yeah, that was nice, and it was it was good um, a good move player wise because it's like you know give give the players something to do because they just got through a cutscene, but otherwise you know let them keep going with a little you know. Um, fake out i guess you'd say um and then and then we get to to basically the ending which is a bit of an exposition dump um where maggie translates you know for, which and that was handled well i like how you kind of perceptively almost switch to maggie not in a playing sense but you, i was you, wondering how they were going to do that because she actually technically doesn't explain to him what the conversation was about after which i understand constraints mm-hmm. in this game and you just have to believe yeah. but you know i did notice it <laughs> yeah yeah what it was it was handled kind of fluidly and nicely where they you, you mm-hmm. almost hear it as maggie who understands that language and, and so therefore it's spoken in english and that mm-hmm. that seems maybe a little bit much um as far as uh, just, you know, just, yeah. It's a lot of information. How do you pronounce that? Cockyton? Cockyton? So I, when I talked to Bill Tiller, it was the first time I heard the name pronounced out loud. So mm-hmm. they are called Cassitans and the oh. planet is called Cassitus. Oh, see, I was pronouncing it so wrong. <laughs> Me too. For <laughs> thirty years, <laughs> we all had a more phallic take on what it actually was. Okay. <laughs> well exactly. <laughs> but he's he's good. I mean, he's a big guy. This is this is the main guy. He's the great inventor, and he's a big guy. He's like I don't know what did he look like. He was like ten feet tall, and he had great wisdom and great sadness. There was almost mm-hmm. like a resignation and to a his goatee. existence. And, yeah, <laughs> and a goatee. <laughs> adorable though i mean and i know what i think they do the same thing if they found us on their planet when everything was still going i almost feel like they would have considered us animals maybe put us into a zoo or something if if because as exhibits as they were just naturally a curious species i'm not sure that they would have considered us on the level but in, in this circumstance uh we were okay with them and they were okay with us Yes, and to the listeners, I don't, well, actually, I don't know if it's fair to project that, but I, I got like a dark crystal kind of vibe from from their aesthetic design. Like, a, I don't know, not not necessarily like exactly like a Skeksy or anything like that, but just yeah, have that mm-hmm. that 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 fantasy element. But it's not by no means is it like a stereotypical alien or anything like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, anyway. That, by the way, the the name of the planet is written on the big box, but never mentioned in the game. It's it's mentioned in the game's novelization, but it's not mentioned in the game. Oh, that's, that's why right. it didn't. we don't know how to pronounce it. Oh, fair. Okay, that's <laughs> just off the hook. Nice. <laughs> um, what do you? What are? Uh, before I just like, in, or I should say, instead of just poorly describing it to everybody, uh, let me get both of your takes on on the ending. I'll start, Daniel. Start with you. What's your? I don't know. What's your summary of of the ending of the game? Did you find it satisfying? What's your takeaways? I found it satisfying, and I also like the fact that there are two endings because you can revive Maggie. And you can leave her there and let the alien revive her in the end. I don't so know. I love that part. Yeah, I didn't revive her. I like the alien reviver because that's what you promised, right? Yeah, but promises are there to break. So I revived her. <laughs> so I saved the game, <laughs> and I revived her just so I could see what, what would happen. So the main difference is that she's angry at you at the end. As wow, opposed to smiling at you could. at the end. <laughs> wow. So you get, because yeah, you get that real visual movie theater style smile at the very end that she's super yeah, happy. So, with you, right? <laughs> so she's angry if you revive her. 
Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> that's that's the main difference. That's amazing. But, but I like the fact that it gave you gave you the option to revive her. Yeah. Instead mm-hmm. of saying instead of letting Boston say no, I promised Maggie. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's that good adventure game stuff. As long as you, yeah, just having the being able to exhibit that little rebellious streak and try it anyway. That's like the the spirit of the genre to me, it's encapsulated in one moment. That's very cool. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like happy. So for the I, game. I really like the ending. The ending resonated with me, and I, I, you know, it's it's part of the reason why I like the game. The ending was satisfying, and the fact that you don't see the, uh, you know, the the way home, just see right. them mm-hmm. entering the the new spacecraft, and and that's it. The game ends. So I really like that mm-hmm. ending. The way they edited it and and implemented it in the game. Yeah, agreed. My son and I had had a good, had a nice like twenty minute talk on on you know what he imagined would have happened when they got home, which is like the the, the mm-hmm. fruits of not describing it to the to the audience, right? Where we got to like play with our imaginations and and you know have like theoretical discussions on what it implied and what might have happened when they returned home. And yeah, it was it was best left exactly the way it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good. I felt the same way. I was imagining him going back and telling everybody like the next episode essentially was in my right. head. And then like, how was how was Brink going to do? I mean, he looked like shit at the end. You're just like, dude, <laughs> you do not look okay. Even on the back off. You look like it's 50 like, years older. Yeah. Just <laughs> you're some old guy. And then they do kind of a close up on him. I'm just like, whoa, buddy, like this is this has been harder on you than anybody else. <laughs> But it was great. I liked I liked the whole idea. I liked going back to talk about what had happened. I liked, you know, putting the idea of putting some of them at peace and uh, you know, just going in and messing with their whole world, throwing panels around and just like removing them, digging giant holes in places. <laughs> I, I thought that was great. It really tied in together well at the end. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. We, sorry, that sounded so douchey. Yeah, all right. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> I mean, now that she's whatever done. you guys say. <laughs> <laughs> you nerds <laughs> that's fair <laughs> um okay now that we've reached the, the end of the story um is there D- daniel i'm just curious if you have any like kind of i don't know more like fun facts or development kind of things that you've learned from talking to people that, that made the game or, or anything we could shoehorn in that's just fun to fun to talk about well, here. there are tons of fun facts the one thing i i'm surprised that you didn't talk about was the voice acting that oh, right. Boston Low is voiced by Robert Patrick, right? By uh, by from Terminator Two, yes. Two, yeah, exactly. Okay. So I, I always imagined that it would be great for me to get Robert Patrick for an interview and just talk to him about the dig for like five <laughs> I hours. I love that. Oh, oh that's awesome. God. It's like bringing on Tim Curry to just talk about, say, Frankenstein or something. Right. Right. Exactly. Or see- Gabriel Knight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I had the, the uh, God. I'm struggling for his name now, but I um, yeah, Toonstruck, uh, Back to the Future guy, Jesus, Christopher Louis. Lloyd. Thank you, hey man. I, that wasn't going to come to me either because when you said it, I'm like that. That wasn't even close to on deck. Um, but he was at the Denver <laughs> Comic Con recently, and I was really tempted to go all the way down there just to hit him with Toonstruck questions. Um, instead of anything else but okay let me get your both of your guys thoughts on the voice acting because i'll just i'll summarize my thoughts quickly and say that i thought the acting the quality of the voice acting was 
was A plus a- across the board. Really, all three lead characters did a great job. Maybe maybe Brink could have committed a little more to the German vibe, but regardless, it was it was quality acting. Um, but it it did sound like maybe they weren't recording in the same room or at the same time. Like it it, it sometimes it felt like the the conversations like the 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 one actor wasn't exactly aware of what the other one had just said. Mm-hmm. Did you guys pick up on that? Well, at all? I think it has to do with uh, voice directing at that point, because yeah. I presume that Robert Patrick didn't record with the other guys. Right. Mm-hmm. He's Robert Patrick. Right. Yeah, that's fair. The yeah. heels of Terminator 2. So. He was kicking ass and taking names and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, which, so I, your, but yeah. What's your overall takeaway of the, of the voice acting? Was it, was it a, an asset to the game? Yeah. I mean, I... Mm-hmm. I remember at the time, after playing the game and really liking it, I wanted to watch Terminator 2 to hear <laughs> how Robert Patrick sounded. And so, remember, this was the 90s, so I had to wait for it to be be broadcasted on TV. So mm-hmm. I waited for a long time for yeah. Terminator 2 to be broadcasted on TV for me to, to compare the voices of mm-hmm. Boston Lowe and, and the T-1000. But mm-hmm. Robert Patrick has a really great voice. And, yeah, and- he does. I, I didn't see it till it arrived on TV either. And it's funny, it's not till I was older and I started renting the movies at the store that I'm like, for one, I haven't seen like 15% of these movies because they edit them. And for two, I didn't know all these swear words are in here. <laughs> I didn't see any of the nudity. Like these were, they like, you know, they took them and they, they PG'd them down to put on network television. So I saw like a weirdly truncated version of all my favorite movies. So it was like rediscovering them all when I got older. <laughs> well, luckily we don't, we didn't have that problem over here. We saw the oh, actual versions of the movies. So regarding, uh, you asked me about uh, interesting fun facts and trivia in the game. So first of all, there are tons of Easter eggs. You can, when you look at the... The pen ultimate, which is the iPad they, they use, then Boston Lowe says that it's the T1000 model, which is <laughs> his character from Terminator. And you can also, if you click the control B, then he flexes his muscles. And there are tons of stuff. And even in, you know, in Curse of Monkey Island, there is an Easter egg in which when you're in Stan's. When you're in Stan's room in the cemetery, right. then you can activate an Easter egg. If you enter the room like 40 times or 45 times, then mm-hmm. Maggie and the spider appear in a spider web on the top left corner of the room. Awesome. That was an interesting um, That's cool. Easter egg. <laughs> I like that. There's a few that I haven't tried that I've seen online where you can like, I don't know, press control B if... You, yeah, that is that where Boston flexes? Is that the Easter egg you're talking about? Because that's the one I no, didn't No, the, the, the Easter egg is when you click Control B. So right, it doesn't happen it. Yeah. naturally in the game. <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you, Paul, is how your kid reacted to Brink's amputation. Um, good, very good question. Um, I, th- I think. I was really, I, I, I was really baiting him to figure that puzzle out inventory wise because I was excited. <laughs> I actually remembered the solution, so it's really dad of the year. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. Now, son, he said human teeth aren't strong enough. Human teeth. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah, I was I was going pretty heavy on trying to get him to figure it out. I might I might have kind of spoiled the the moment for him in doing that. <laughs> um, but but he was he was um, disappointingly stoic. I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just had to happen. He explained it. I mean, there is no other way. Are you in or are you out? So. <laughs> so yeah. the interesting part was that the dig wasn't. Um, was released in Israel. I don't remember seeing it in the computer store. So my father bought me this game when he visited the U.S. back in 1996. I remember oh, asking cool. him to, to buy the dig. So cool. first of all, this is one of the two LucasArts adventure games that I got from the U.S. The second one is Rebel Assault 2. And so these are the only LucasArts games that came bundled with the adventurer because mm-hmm. games that were released over here weren't released with the adventure. They had localized instructions. The game itself wasn't localized, but they had localized instructions and the localized box and didn't get the adventure. So the, the interesting part was the rating because it has the rating in the back and says, kids six plus animated violence. Hmm. But then while I was watching Bring being amputated at the time, <laughs> I realized if that rating was um, adequate for this game. Right. <laughs> I mean, you watch you watch Brink die in the first 30 yeah. minutes of the game, then mm-hmm. you watch him get amputated, and then you watch him die again. Right. Yeah. Which is considered kid-friendly in our part of town. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I've never seen a rating of ages six and up other than with a toy either. That's pretty awesome. It does make you wonder where the line is between five and six years old at that point. (laughs) I've seen some things. Yeah. Oh, man. No, that's that's good. You know what? I had a lot of fun playing this game. I did not have a clue what I was getting back into. All I've heard is the rhetoric that people have been throwing around on the Internet about it for the last, whatever, 20 or 30 years. And boy... Does it not ever in any way pertain to how I feel about it? Which is true. I mean, I've never really followed what reviewers are saying about specific games and who likes things and who doesn't like things. This game was beautiful. I thought the voice acting was great. The ambiance was great. It was a little puzzly for me, but look, we've got the internet. There is there is no reason to not play this game ever for any reason. It's, it's a beautiful game. It's a short game, even not having to look up very much. It's under four hours, five hours, like very tops if you're doing a lot of exploring. So it's definitely within reach for anybody to play. I, I haven't played it for, I haven't played it since, I think, played it in the pandemic once, played it in 2020. Mm-hmm. So I haven't played it in four years. And the reason why I'm waiting to play it, I started playing it with uh, Paul on stream, but mm-hmm. he got bored halfway through. Oh, so no. <laughs> yeah. And since then, this whole relationship was on the rocks. And basically, <laughs> So the the reason the thing I'm I'm waiting for is for some now that I've got the text play series in which I bring back the people I've interviewed to have a let's play of one of their games with them on stream is I presume that one of the people who worked on the dig would want to play the dig with me but no one does they all hate the game each and every one of them all of the people I've interviewed hate the dig 
Well, hang on. Bill didn't say he absolutely hated the game. When you were interviewing well, him, he was Michael, mildly Michael was Michael Land was <laughs> the first person who actually liked working on mm-hmm. the soundtrack because they actually mm-hmm. let him do whatever he wanted. And so mm-hmm. he, he also mentioned that the dig, uh, the soundtrack, is the closest thing to his personal musical style out of all of the things he, he composed, he yeah. scored over the years. And and he got to use samples of Wagner in the in the composition process, so he got to do whatever he wanted. But all the other people just hated it. The fact that you know they felt like it was built out of various patches from different people from different iterations of the game with no coherent plan in sight. Hmm. Well, and 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 they also felt that the the only reason why this project is not is not being canceled was the fact that it's got the Steven Spielberg name attached to it, so they knew it was it would be a great selling point. Right. And so they didn't like working on a game that everyone thought should be canceled, but wasn't because management thought that it would look great on the shelf. That Steven Spielberg presents the dick. Right. Mm. Even though I think he was only marginally involved in the beginning in the planning, wasn't he? I mean, I don't think he even stopped by throughout the whole process to inspect everything along the way. Well, Steven Spielberg was more of a gamer than George Lucas was. So he mm-hmm. actually played the game and he wasn't involved in the in the entire production because it went on for six years. But he was in the initial meetings about the game and it still has his original idea in it. Right, but I like that. So, and, and since it's his original idea, then they can use his name mm-hmm. with his approval. So, right. So that's interesting because I, I had heard the, like almost whispers, you could say, of, of like internal resentment towards the game, and it sounds like you're, you're confirming that, Daniel, from from your interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it is it true that I, I think I had heard like like four minutes into the initial meeting of the game, like the initial sit down, there was a a, a large earthquake. Yeah, the San Francisco yeah. earthquake of '89. The big one. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Almost cast like an ominous. It was an omen. Right. It was. An omen. <laughs> Not the kind of earthquake that opens up plates and allows you the access to yeah. the inside of the planet either. Right. Yeah, it, it was the kind that tells you to cancel the game before you start working. <laughs> on it. Yeah, exactly. It's a big sign, but so, I'm glad they finished it off anyways. <laughs> And real quick on on the Michael Land uh, Wagner thing that, that that's so that's interesting. He basically was saying that he took influence from from Wagner's works when he made this soundtrack. Not just influence from Wagner's work. They got at that point they got um, licensing for for a bunch of um, bunch of CDs and various musical musical late motifs and 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 basically. They got licensing for samples of various CDs cool. and including Wagner's works. So in addition to the digital instrumentation that Michael Land added to the game, he used samples from Wagner to give the the, the entire soundtrack a more live orchestra feel, even though it wasn't. Right, okay. Right, because yeah, there was there was cello and woodwinds. I mean, there was it kind of it really went orchestral at some points in the soundtrack for sure. 
Yeah. It's, it's nice. It's nice hearing Danny immediately pronounce his name right. Nothing makes me feel more pretentious than when I hear somebody say Wagner. It's just like, I don't know. It makes me shudder. I don't know why it bothers me. <laughs> just like you guys pronounce Ludger, even though it's Ludger. Oh, right. is it Ludger? Oh, okay. I should yeah, know that. That's terrible. I will preemptively not have Paul edit any of my mistakes out so that people can come to the realization with me at this exact moment. <laughs> There's the payoff. <laughs> it's got to be somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But yeah, I think that I was just, I was reading about it and, and the, the whole soundtrack of the uh, the score was made on a Kurzweil uh, K2000 synthesizer. Now I have a Kurzweil uh downstairs i had gotten it after i think it was a cork t1 that we traded it in for but it is an amazing piece of machinery i mean everything about this even though now it's like almost 30 years old is like the future when you're playing on one of those the guy was a genius so can you Kurtzwell? recreate the soundtrack for the dig using <laughs> the Kurzweil k2000 i guess i could walk downstairs and start trying <laughs> <laughs> No, and my you mom should wants use to it as it. the as as the intro theme for this podcast. Oh, cool! Play whatever you yeah. want, and then record that, and that will be the <laughs> musical cue idea. at the beginning of the podcast. The listeners, Paul, be, you're gonna have to stop by and do that. <laughs> to listeners, be like, oh, Paul had his kid do the intro this week. That's oh, adorable. Uh, that's adorable. That's so cute. <laughs> we should do that. Actually, your kid should do the intro one week. That would be pretty awesome. <laughs> Oh man! All right, let's let's bloody let's wrap this thing up, Daniel. Let's do let's do your plugs real quick. I mean, we kind of we kind of have you covered even when you're not here, but but tell everybody about your new Tech Talk channel. Okay, so now we start the spinoff channel from Conversations with Curtis, uh, that includes only my conversations with the people behind the games that I played as a kid. So it's Tech Talk with Daniel Albu on YouTube, which is YouTube.com/slash at Daniel Albu. And over there, you can watch the, all of my interviews from December 31st, which the first one was Allo, and mm -hmm. everything after that. Very cool. And what about and, uh, upcoming and, stuff? And on Twitter, I'm Daniel Albu, and on Mastodon, I'm Daniel Albu at GameDevMastodonPlace, and on BlueSky, I'm Daniel Albu, and on Twitch, I'm TagTalk with Daniel Albu because I joined the Twitch game too late. And so some other <laughs> weird ass Daniel Albu took my username. That's terrible. I'm sorry to the, hear the that. The Daniel Albu's <laughs> around the world are, are, are pretty, pretty annoying because they always use my email. Oh no. <laughs> and That's so the I, they, they register to a bunch of things. And what else? Um, mm -mm. YouTube, Twitter. I love the rivalry between you and the other Daniel Albus. That's fun to think about. <laughs> <laughs> My arch nemesis, Daniel Albu. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you can also find uh, Daniel on the uh, AGH and Content Creators podcast. Uh, he's been there. Yeah. I think there's about five episodes out so far. Uh, and it's all of, I mean, Paul and I are even there for a couple of them. And we talk about uh, like a lot of the really in-depth behind the scenes, behind content creating, behind the interviews, some of the challenges. And, and it's a really cool place. If you like hearing the three of us banter together, there's another place you can find more. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm still the co-producer and co-host of Conversations with Curtis. All of my live streams will still be there. So all of the episodes of Play, in which I play the games with the people I've interviewed. So I've got Noah Falstein, 
And I'm going to play Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis with him. Oh, cool. I get the oh, Space cool. Quest 6 developers. I'm going to play... Um, I'm going to play Space Quest 6 with them in a couple of days. Oh, that's great. And nice. I'm going to play Fatty Bear's Surprise Party. Oh, I love that game. From, Huma- <laughs> from Humongous Entertainment with uh, Brett Taylor, who was the developer of the Scum Engine on that game. Cool. That's and, amazing. And so... I really like that game. That's that's my kid's favorite humongous game. Mm-hmm. Uh, very cool. And we'll, it's listeners, we'll link we'll link all of Daniel's stuff below. Again, as we usually do, we'll throw some extras in this week, though, like the Twitch and all that stuff. And and yeah, mm-hmm. check out. And uh, do you want to do our, our just extremely painful outro real quick? Oh my god, yeah. If you really feel the need to follow us, and we're only saying this because apparently we feel you feel the need to find us around out there outside of listening to our voices. But you can find us on Twitter at CGG Podcast. You can also find Paul on Twitter at The Phantom Fellows. You can also download The Phantom Fellows demo on Steam or wishlist it. You know, have a check it out, see what's up there. Send us your words, mail at classicgamersguild.com or even become a Patreon to support the show. So yeah, thanks to all of our Patreon people. We really appreciate you. It makes the show possible. And an extra special thanks to Tim Ellis in our extra special thanks tier that we haven't renamed yet, as well as... Girolamo, Girolamo, you, Castaldo, you are awesome, however you pronounce your name, (laughs) and we really appreciate you in the extra special thanks to your Michael Council, Brian Manown, and our very newest Patreoner, uh, Maria, Marina Turner. I am not a name person. Don't make me do this again. (laughs) Very professional. Yeah. I was trying. That was trying, guys. That that actually was no. It was very trying for the listeners. Anyways, I, I preempted this as being painful, and we're just delivering on a promise. That's true. So we're on Facebook. We're a page. We're a group. Classic Gamers Guild. We're also on Instagram. We're also on YouTube. So you can shout us out into the void. We're there. We're on your Google speakers. Just ask for the Classic Gamers Guild podcast. It's fine if you boo at it. We won't hear it. Uh, Paul, please save me. Oh God. Uh... Is that do anything else? Do don't don't do murder. Thank God. She ran out of there. That's close. <laughs>